Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Financial literacy is a term that excites some, but many people are hard-pressed to get excited about it, despite its importance in how we all view, manage, and maximize our money, from our very first pocket money earnings as a kid to making retirement savings last these days for up to 30 years after we no longer pull that weekly wage. My guest today, Julia Newbold, is Managing Editor of Money Magazine, Australia's most read personal finance magazine. In this role, she oversees all content for the magazine, website, and podcast. In June, she did start their podcast, Friends With Money, and prior to that, she has been editor-at-large for the magazine, where she starred as public face of the publication through a range of mediums such as webcast podcasts for big corporates like Westpac and Aware Super, as well as doing regular radio and TV segments around the country. Through her various positions in financial media, it has been her overarching goal to demystify finance for more people and allow those who want to do more with their money to have greater opportunities to access the best information. She spent the majority of her career in media, combining her academic background in economics and practical experience in journalism, and she's contributed and led editorial and content teams for financial services publications and top 20 ASX-listed companies for the past 20 years. Since the year 2000, she's worked extensively with financial planners where she's gained much knowledge about personal finance and an understanding of the role professionals can play in helping people reach their personal and financial goals. In 2013, driven by a desire to see greater inroads in financial independence for women, Julia established and managed the Stella Network, an initiative supported by BT Financial Group to support women in financial planning with the belief financial planners should be more like the people they hope to serve. She's an advisory board member for One Million Women and a member of the University of Sydney Alumni Council. From 2016 to 2018, Julia served as treasurer for Women in Theatre and Screen and was a Women of Westpac Global Trends Committee member. In March last year, her first book, The Joy of Money, was published and the book was written to help women become more confident around money and understand how to structure theirs better to reach their own life goals. A bit of fun stuff about Julia. She has a passion for writing, equality, theatre, 70s music and classic film in her spare time. And when she's not in lockdown, she attends red carpet events, reads a lot, acts as a mentor for women in business and has known to write a review under a synonym or two. It's my great pleasure to welcome Julia to the podcast. Thanks very much, Amber. Very good to be here with you today. Lots to cover, obviously, in financial literacy, but I do want to go back to a young Julia. Did you have a career ambition and did you get that ambition realised? Oh, I had a few career ambitions. For a long time, I wanted to be a dentist. So I used to, when I had a tooth out, put them on a piece of blue tack on my wall and then I had like a banana lounge that I could, you know, pretend to treat people in, in my little sunroom. So when I realised that I was quite squeamish and, you know, didn't like the sight of blood, I kind of realised that wasn't a career. And also the fact that I did work experience at a dental surgery and 
people coming in and saying how much they didn't want to be there and they hated coming, I thought after a really busy week, that would be really upsetting. Yeah. I thought, you know, you're not appreciated. So, yeah, I gave that up early. And then I thought about the law and that was a little bit dry for me. And then I did some work experience at the stock exchange and that was in the days where you could go in and you could see the chalkies and, and so on. And that was a pretty exciting environment. So I was fairly keen to go into the stock market. And that's, I guess, why I, I studied economics at university. Mm, that's great. Well, obviously, it's, it's put you in good stead for what you do now. Financial literacy is a term many of us never knew, perhaps, when we started our own work, life sort of you know, experiences or having to make decisions about the money we earn. Sometimes you get great you know, mentors and your parents, sometimes you don't. What is financial literacy and why do you think it matters so much? Well, I think there's uh, two sides to that. I think in the first place, the words financial literacy, it's kind of ugly and it makes it unattractive and it makes it seem like it's something that you don't understand. It's, it's you know, you're taking the concepts of, you know, maths and working out, you know, budgets and stuff like that and just turning it into something that seems a bit remote for people. So one of the things that I'm quite passionate about is actually using the language to make it more friendly and accessible to people. And when we wrote the book, I wrote The Joy of Money with a financial advisor, Kate McCallum, we looked at how people talk about their money. And, you know, when it's full of jargon, it's very exclusive. And so making sure that we speak in a language that people understand and, you know, want to take control of their money, it's not about money for money's sake. It's about how it allows you to do the things you want to do in your life. So I guess you know, there's basic concepts like save more than you earn and the idea of compound interest and, you know, putting aside money for a rainy day. There's those concepts. And I think that some people are just better equipped in the financial world because they have learnt lessons from their parents and, you know, their parents might be good savers or they've got good ideas about investment and it's like the Robert Kiyosaki book you know rich dad poor dad where he learned a lot of the lessons that rich people know just because he had a friend who's came from a rich family and I, th- I think it's about you know making it accessible to people so that they understand you know how much you should take out and borrow and the idea of paying yourself first so that you're putting some money into savings for your future before you're paying all the bills you need to. And, you know, what percentage of your income should you be spending on rent or a mortgage and so on? Absolutely. So what do you think makes financial literacy really work well? I mean, you've touched on the idea having great parents or friends as mentors can be one way, but is it a school subject that we kind of miss out on or is there an ongoing way that as we go through different life stages, you know, from that first paycheck to, you know, obviously facing retirement and beyond, that we can become better at our own financial understanding? Because a lot of us probably ignore that stuff and even if you've got you know you've bought property or you've you traded some shares there's still a limit sometimes to what you think you can do with your money so how do you keep that knowledge going I guess and how do you keep educating yourself I think it's for me it's like hearing what other people do other successful people how have they made it work and one of the things we did in the book was we talked to a a number of people and they were you know probably 40s and 50s and looking at you know how was their super stacking up now how much did they have what were their plans for the future and so on and the idea was really to say 
Well, everyone can do it differently. And this is why someone's got more than someone else. Maybe they didn't have to pay private school fees, or maybe they, you know, inherited money, or they were in a higher paying job. I I guess it's just the focus on what you can do with your money. And I think that we separate it too much and have like the financial pages and, you know, all the things that you do about finance, but it doesn't always connect with what you want to achieve overall in your life like how long do you want to work when do you want to have the choice of being able to maybe work part-time you know how are you going to afford that holiday how are you going to get the lifestyle that you you want and I think definitely you should learn about it at school and the basic concepts again of compounding interest and you know putting money into super it's the unsexiest thing but it's the one thing that, you know, I keep going back to thinking, well, if I was to tell a younger me, you know, what to do, it would be put money into super, but then the younger me wouldn't want to listen to that. But I guess the ideas of showing what a difference it makes to start saving really early and, and what you can achieve afterwards, and I guess showing different pathways as well. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Obviously, the GFC a number of years ago and then the 2018 Banking Royal Commission showed many everyday people that trusting those so-called smartest people in the room with our money is not always wise and doesn't always pan out. So do you think that financial advisors have had an overly bad rap when it comes to this kind of financial literacy role that they've played with clients who might have been clients for years but, you know, perhaps haven't always paid attention to the money because they've got someone doing it for them. What do you think the advisors need to to do to make sure we, we trust them, but they do better and that as consumers, we really understand their role and the limits to what they can offer as well? Yeah, good question. I think that, yes, I think financial advisors did get an overly bad rap during the GFC. And I think people are always wanting to get more than someone else. There is a bit of greed involved. I think, you know, the old lesson of if it's too good to be true, it probably is, is something that people should really listen to. You know, the more that you're likely to get in returns, the more your risk goes up. And I think really looking at that and and facing up to whether or not you could stand that risk. And, you know, you hear that maybe your funds will go down 20%. You know, I think that people expect if the money goes down, it will only be for a very short period and, you know, they don't realise that things could go on. I think the things that people should have is a basic understanding of what they expect from a financial advisor and how much help the financial advisor can be it's always a good idea to keep on top of your investments and what where your money is, always be aware of where your money is and how it's performing is one thing. But the financial advisor can offer so much more and that's in, you know, protection and getting insurance for for your assets and for yourself and for for your work, like on income protection. And I think also an advisor can do a lot outside the investing world of just making sure that you're on track, you're saving enough, you've got it in the right structures, you're putting away, you know, the right amount for your mortgage and money for your super. So I think the expectations and understanding what a financial advisor can offer are really important. Absolutely. Maybe asking more questions. I think sometimes initially I've, I've had a few advisors over the years and I've now been with my current one for about six and, you know, for, for where our life stage is at, he's great and I trust him and all of that. But sometimes, you know, you have your regular catch-ups and you just sit there passively. I think it's about sometimes not thinking the question's dumb or stupid, but just asking it. I think a lot of us hide behind the fact we don't really know what to ask or what they could be doing more. So we don't. 
That's right. And I think it's quite an intimate relationship. Like you're telling this person all your financial details and actually you're kind of telling them your hopes and dreams for the future as well. So you've got to make sure that you do have a connection and you feel that they're really on your side because you're going to be with them you know, hopefully for a long time. And there'll be things that come up in your life, whether it's, you know, trying for a child or, you know, getting together with someone, breaking up. There's a lot of intimate moments that you do need the financial advisor's help. So you've got to make sure that you connect and that they really understand. And most importantly, that they listen to you. They're not just giving you some sort of pre-packaged idea of what you should do, but they're actually listening to whether or not that's right for you. Absolutely. And understanding, I think things like your risk appetite as well. I know that was one of the things that this particular advisor did for us early on as a as individuals. I'm, I'm with my husband, but you know, just that idea of, you know, where where do you sit? Where how where do you feel comfortable? And we're it's basically back, smack bang in the middle, apparently, in terms of <laughs> risk appetite, which is probably hundred percent true. And risk like, appetite's a really difficult one to measure as well. Like if you're investing money that's not going to change your life, like you've got a, a pool of savings, then you're probably more open to risk. But if it's the money that's got to last you through retirement, then that's somewhere where maybe your risk isn't so great. Absolutely. So I think you've got to be really careful of how you're measuring that risk or how someone's measuring it on your behalf. Absolutely. And just being aware of that, I guess, in yourself. So talking about women and finance, which I know you're very passionate about and well-versed in, are women needing different financial literacy support or is that just such a gender assumption that, you know, women aren't great with their money? Because I know a lot of women who are very successful and do great things with their money. So just explain some ideas around financial literacy, and I guess, leading up to, you know, why you wrote your book last year, The Joy of Money. Yeah, so I guess the way we looked at it is that women think about money in a different way to men. Like we're thinking about broader life issues and how we're going to fund them rather than we're looking at, oh, we've got this much money to invest, how will we do it? So I think that the language that's connected to finance for women tends to be a little bit different. And I think there's a little less confidence with women of do they trust themselves to make the right investment decision. We we want to know more about how things work and we want to know the background of them. And so I think that it's easier for women to have conversations with other women or with people who are listening and providing the answers. And also I think, you know, the book for us was to get people to understand the concepts, a bit of the language, and so that they could ask the questions of an advisor if if necessary. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think it's great to be able to demystify that in that way. So what tools do you use for your own financial decision making? Obviously, as the editor of Money Magazine and having had a long career in financial services and all that kind of stuff, you know more than most of us. But how do you keep your knowledge expanding? And and I guess what at the moment is some of the ways in which you make these decisions? Well, I read a lot on investments and I try and keep up with the experts. We have a lot of them contributing in the magazine on stocks and shares and funds and and so on. And and I like to keep abreast of it. I'm actually interested. And I think for me, it helps to have skin in the game. So, you know, early on, I made sure I had investments in the stock market because you watch it more, you know, and you're looking at, okay, why did your shares maybe not do so well as something else in the same industry or, you know, which industries are moving and so on. So you know, I find it interesting and I like to keep up with it. I'm also really interested in what people do with their money. I, you, you know, I find that 
again, it's not just about the money, but to learn how people spend their money, it, it kind of shows you what makes them tick. And I'm really interested in people. One of the things that we did this year in the magazine is we focused a lot on um, financially independent retire early people, FIRE, um, the FIRE oh, couple. Fires. Oh, I love a new acronym. That's great. <laughs> and it's fascinating. So, you know, for some people it's, the, you know, they want to save all their money and put it into investment so that they can retire early and that might be 30, 35, 40, 45, you know. And for others it's just to have that independence so that maybe you want to take five or ten years out of the workforce to have kids or you want the flexibility to just work part-time. But just, you know, learning from how other people do it is fascinating for me and I'm probably too spendthrift to ever do that but you know, <laughs> oh, there you've know. just revealed something about your financial habits <laughs> but I do find it fascinating you know how other people make it work and you know I'm often thinking oh I, I you kind of know what your friends are earning roughly you know by the jobs they do and and, and so, so on yeah and I always find it fascinating you think oh they're spending a real lot of money I wonder how they manage to do that I wonder if they've got anything aside, you know, or other people who aren't spending any money, you think, well, I wonder what they're doing with their money. So I just find it, you know, fascinating to just learn more about what people do with their money and, you know, how they build it. And right now with the property market going nuts. Again, let's just say again in Australia because it's, um, I feel like we have this conversation with people all the time where it's, oh, it'll slow down, there'll be a crash. It hasn't really happened. It's like on steroids this time. And and I think how do people come up with these millions of dollars that they need to buy the houses? You know, how much are people's mortgages right now? I find that completely fascinating. And I, I think, well, and how do these people plan on paying it? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of... A lot of things that go into that and, and property, of course, is fascinating. We are a little bit obsessed with it, particularly in capital cities like Sydney and Melbourne and so forth. And I'm actually in regional Australia now and it's gone crazy here too because lockdowns allow people more flexibility. Yeah. But there are people, yeah, who basically the houses have gone up 50% in a year um, yeah. on the New South Wales Central Coast. I don't think that's sustainable, but also earnings are very different up here to people who would work in Sydney. So we have a lot of people leaving Sydney to come here, but that's also pushing prices up. So there's a bit of an equity question in that because I think housing, my personal view is housing is a basic human right. And as soon as you start thinking too much of it being like assets and investing and everything, which of course is, is great if you're the investor, there is a sense of, well, this is just, this is crazy. And like you say, how are people going to pay it? And what happens when interest rates move? They're the things I always think about. It is really crazy. And one of the things with Money Magazine is we have a very engaged audience. We have, you know, readers who write in, they ask questions to Paul Clitheroe and, you know, they will tell us if we've got something wrong or we've missed something or, you know, that they liked something. And we realise that we do have a lot of regional readers as well as city readers and we get, you know, I live in the city, I live in Sydney and, you know, we get a bit obsessed about what's happening just physically around us and, you know, I live in the inner city and so I'm constantly seeing what property prices are, are reaching. But, you know, we get questions from someone who might have a property that's worth 300000 or 400000 and it's a very different world to someone who's, you know, in, in Sydney and has a property that's worth $2 million. It's, you know, and there are questions of how will that work out in the long run. And I think, you know, the, the pandemic has really changed equity for people you know that it's it's really separated the rich and the poor in a way yeah and it's only gonna get greater I think it's um and I think there's a sense of 
false security that the market will always go up and so if you need to downsize that'll be your retirement you know Mm. nest egg in a way which there's other things that happen in life like you say life events like divorce and so forth which mean that you don't necessarily have a two million dollar house that's yours anymore so I think it's about planning for I guess the curveballs as well as the expectation of, of what the trends have actually shown us in the last 20 years or so. That's right. And, you know, I'm a little bit, I haven't been married or divorced, but, you know, I'm a little bit obsessed with the idea of divorce and how people, you know, you don't plan for divorce, but it hits people and then they really don't know what to do and they haven't been in control of the money. And once again, that's fine because one person will always take the upper hand and stuff like that. But just to not have any knowledge of what your asset pool is or what your debts are, or you know, that that's quite scary. Absolutely. No, we need to all educate ourselves. So culturally, have you noticed there's any differences in financial literacy that stand out to you in different communities? I'm thinking I worked for a while in Hong Kong covering the derivatives and compliance markets there many years ago and then moved to London and then Paris. And there was a very different views of everything such as home ownership. So, you know, in the UK, a lot of people rent for a long time particularly if they live in London and sometimes it's fully furnished and it's rent controlled and all those things which you don't have perhaps in Australia is there sort of some differences that stand out to you I guess not just in the way people use money but the way that they educate themselves about it yeah there are and I find this a totally fascinating subject actually you know I worked a while ago with a a guy who was from India and he said that when he bought property he just wanted to pay cash for it and I thought oh how do you save up that much money to buy property and it was a lot of family helping each other and all going into one property and putting all their money into one paying that and then getting another one and you know taking small loans out at a time and I think you know with a lot of Asian communities the whole idea of family makes a lot of difference in a lot of your financial decisions and even in retirement and looking after elderly parents and so on and not having to enter the aged care sphere is quite a fascinating idea. I think that we can learn a lot from different cultures and just, you know, the expenses of what some people are willing to pay and what others, you know, think that is not worth it. And agreed, like, you know, you go to, I look at Europe and I think, you know, home ownership, it's not such a, a big deal, but you know, from our experience here, how do you cope in retirement if you don't own your own home? You know, mm. we don't have the And that might have something to do with families and networks and communities again. And like the rent control as well that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think that's the thing. If you're not earning income and say you choose to stay in a big city like Sydney or Melbourne and stay in the inner city, you, it's going to be expensive in retirement for you to rent and yeah. to live there so I think you're right it's a different mindset perhaps also living with extended family which is something we don't culturally necessarily do in a lot of western cultures but they do I used to live in Chatswood in Sydney and you know you'd see three generations living in the one home the big home that they would build or they'd extend on you know from grandmother through to aunts and then obviously the core family. So that's obviously going to have an impact on your cost of living as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, things may change, you know, as we see them as good ideas and you realise how expensive aged care and so on can be. You know, there might be deals that, you know, parents can help you with, you know, buying your property but with the guarantee that you'll allow them to stay when needs be you know we've got to look at different ways of doing things than how it is today I think for a lot of people 
Absolutely. So changing tack a bit, I'm a big believer no one's got to where they are without at least one or two people who stand out in their life and have taught them something or everything. Who would be your greatest one or two mentors and what have they taught you? It's a great question, but I I can't name one or two actually. It's, you know, it's like a village for me of people who have helped me in different ways. You know, my partner now helps me just with confidence of things just you know stepping stepping up and and doing more and realizing that I do have a voice and I can help people and so on I mean in early days you know I had some great science teachers who you know who, who inspired me I I think obviously you know my parents I guess by pushing me hard were inspirational as well but in the workplace you know occasionally you have a good boss and you learn from them and you learn how to treat people better and quite often you have a bad boss or bad people in the workplace and you might learn more from them of what not to do. Absolutely. I definitely think that's the case. If you could choose a favourite book, song or film, what would it be and why? Oh, that is the toughest and that changes all the time. I guess I I love the theatre and I love musicals and I love all those, you know, big Hollywood musicals of the 40s and 50s and um, one that i totally love and it's always been panned is the musical Mame. I love that. I love the the storyline of Mame and, you know, really taking the most out of life, you know, getting the most out of every experience, I think. Interesting. That's and great. also glamorous. Oh, glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> that always helps. A bit of visual eye candy. As we wrap up today, what would be your final takeaway message for anyone navigating the politics of financial literacy? I guess it's to have confidence that you can do something, that you can make changes, that you don't have to know everything to get started in in taking control of your finances. You know, just focusing on one part, you know, maybe make sure that you're insured in case something happens to you in your role or making sure that you're on top of what your asset position is or that you're actually working towards some sort of goal and that you're actually putting something aside from each pay so that you are building your future and really so boring but you know put more money into super get that sorted you know have that knowledge that you'll be fine when you get to that age where you can use it and you know as younger people you know find that it's so far away and you can't touch it the amount that that helps to put that little bit aside when you can really afford it and then you can not pay so much down the track I think that you know, if really someone had made me do it, I would be so appreciative today. Absolutely. So that good old compound interest lesson is where we'll land as we wrap up today. (laughs) Excellent. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. If you do want to connect further with Julia, there will be some details on the show notes. As always, until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.